Here is our interview with Jeffrey Tucker, episode 102 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Some poor audio quality on our end at the beginning, but don't let that put you off. It's a truly excellent episode, and we allowed Jeffrey to do most of the talking. The illustrious Jeffrey Tucker, economics writer, author of many books, including It's a Jetsons World from a while ago. And I think, I believe your most recent one is Right Wing Collectivism. That's a collection of essays which I got on Amazon Kindle when it came out. How are you, Jeffrey? Good. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. Pleasure is all ours. Thank you for joining us. So I think a good thing to start with would be just a brief history of right wing collectivism. What is it? Can yeah. we eat it? brief history so my my concern in in writing the book is that I I think that uh, many libertarians have pretty well schooled in the problem of left socialism Right. Uh, 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 people who grew up in the cold war people who who went to college you're surrounded by uh, left socialists all the time and your professors uh, we're 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 force fed this stuff from a very early age, and then we 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 discern that there's something wrong with it, and and we bail from it, and we ended up being sort of dissidents from that from that framework, and that's all great. The problem is that if you go back uh, far enough in history to the early 19th century and the revolt against liberalism, it's always been the case that that collectivism has taken on various forms. And uh, left socialism is one of them, but uh, there are two additional forms that uh, that are sort of extant that that have this long history. Uh, one is uh, right collectivism, which is uh, uh, tends to be more nationalistic, uh, nationalistically oriented. It's not so much focused on on collective ownership or nationalization of, of factories or power to the workers or something like that. Typically, uh, right collectivism has different themes like, uh, uh, you know, nation based on, on language, geography, uh, race, uh, the people. Uh, so united and marching uh, to, to a great leader, uh, for example, is one of, the, one of the normal themes you'd see in this. And, and and a third theme, which I don't cover in the book, uh, it, which is typically theocratic, actually. Right. Um, sure. That that uh, and you can find uh, these kind of highly politicized versions of of religious doctrine in in all the five main religious traditions: uh, Catholicism, uh, Protestantism, Islam. Um, and Judaism and occultism, which is basically what the Nazis really represented. So that's a that's a, a, a third kind of revolt against liberalism. So, um, uh, and what is liberalism? Liberalism is the conviction that society can work on its own without top-down authority and that uh, we're all better off if we just respect each other's rights and have freedom of, of speech and, and press and association and and trade, and that and that this freedom should be equal for everybody. Everybody should have equal freedom, and that nobody should have privileges over anybody else. That's basically the liberal idea. But in the early nineteenth century, there was a, a big revolt against uh, the social effects of this, which are 
tend, tend to be ennobling, you know, of, of all of humanity, and, but, but leading people to move to the cities and build great enterprises and, and migrate to various places. And, and some people, the wrong people get rich, you know, and, and so that inspired a big revolt. And so what you saw developing through the 19th, 19th century, particularly on the continent, um, uh, it, it took a little different form in the Anglo-Saxon world. But on the continent, it took, a, uh, it, it, it took uh, f f the, the form of left and right Hegelianism. Uh, left Hegelianism became uh, eventually, you know, in the 20th century communist uh, theory, uh, well, actually in 19th century, mid to late 19th century communist theory, scientific socialism, but many other types of left uh, socialism, including egalitarian Rousseauianism out of France and stuff like that. But then there is also this right Hegelian tradition that uh, uh, began with the celebration of protectionism, uh, uh, elevation of great men, the celebration of hierarchies, the demand to preserve slavery against uh, the push to eliminate it and uh, build up the nation state as, as more powerful than the individual and to l limit the scope of individual action to defer to uh, the national collective. And, and, and of course it, it came to full fruition under, under Bismarck, but then, but then, but, but then later uh, with including the addition of scientific racism, uh, restrictions on, on travel, uh, uh, the development of the corporate state and that sort of thing, and the military state uh, culminates then in, in the murderous and wacky experiment of, of, of Nazism, essentially. So um, my, my purpose in, in writing the book was to draw attention to this, this different flavor of collectivism so that we understand that um, it's it's not just a, a random thing that it has that has a deep history and and neither is it just motivated by um, like you get in in Europe today anytime a nationalist movement rises up uh, the press will always say oh look they're a bunch of racists well that to me that's a very superficial that may be true but but that's a very superficial way of looking at it essentially this is a, a form of anti liberalism that takes on various iterations of various countries in various ways. Uh, but the point is that it's, it's not gonna make us freer. It's, it's trading one form of statism for another uh, form of yeah. state. Do you have anything to add? Nothing to add to that. Okay, great. Like, no, I really appreciate it. I think at this time it was a necessary part of the dialogue. Um, I became a libertarian to the tail end of Bush um, and for a period, I felt more, well, ha being a person that came from the left, I felt that libertarian was more aligned with leftism at the time because there was a revolt on the left against the war under Bush and against the surveillance state. But very quickly, um, it disappeared under Obama. And over that time, I've seen as libertarian has actually, as libertarianism has grown as a force, online and in the public mind there has been a closer and closer connection especially in the most recent years with um identifying with the right and the um yeah and they're, they're seen as some kind of cross-pollination yeah. with the alt-right would you like to speak to that or comment on yeah. it yeah 
Yeah, um, th this is precisely why I wrote the book was was to alert people to to the dangers of a different form of collectivism. Uh, I, I think a lot of this grows out of a certain naivety among liber libertarians. You know, so you get people showing up to your meetups and they're saying, "Oh, don't, I hate the left. I hate the left. The the yeah. terrible, the regressive left, and 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 the way they're trying to uh, manipulate us and control our speech and control our actions." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Uh, and then, then they uh, then they start exploring other things. They're like, "Yeah, what about what about the the, the, the nation? What about uh, getting a great leader behind us? What about uh, mm. a race as a as a determinative factor in the sweep of history?" And and then they start going to strange places. And unfortunately, mm. libertarians are weirdly naive about this, right? I mean, that's right. mostly what it comes down to is that people are just unaware of it. I mean, I've I have I have friends of mine that for years said, oh, we should have freedom. As freedom's great. And it's like, oh, any exceptions? No, 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 freedom's great. And then they get under the influence of some guy who comes along and says, yeah, but I have a scientific theory about uh, about migration patterns, you know, and if they take the wrong direction, then science tells us that the, the country is going to plunge into into hell. And uh, if we let too many people who, you know, are, are not uh, Christian into our country, then, then they're going to drag us into Sharia law, you know, or uh, forget people of the wrong race, then, then we're completely doomed and so on. And libertarians haven't been prepared to argue against this outlook. And what's interesting about it is that, so it's extremely important to realize that a century ago when the, when the, our existing total states were, were largely built, you know, that's when we got central banks and wage controls and income taxes, uh, passports and migration restrictions and, and uh, heavy corporate regulations and you know, almost all over the developed world, that, that this apparatus is built by these two pillars. One was left wing and one was right wing. And they look like their effects are very similar, but they have different uh, pitches. So uh, left socialism appeals to to intellectuals and to you know high, the highly educated um, uh, elite populations and that sort of thing. And and they reach out to extremely marginalized groups with the advertisement that we're going to get you all that money that the rich people have. We're going to get it to you. It's always a lie, but that's what they always say. The right wing version of the pitch is more of a, an appeal to the bourgeoisie. You're being displaced by uh, by foreigners. Uh, uh, foreign countries are, are coming after you. Uh, they're, they're, your, your populations are, are being swamped by people who don't share your values, and they're going to rob you and vote you out of power. You better you better rally around a strong man right away mm -hmm. uh, to save to save uh, your nation and your race and your people yeah. and your faith, right? Liberty so there's, these are two different society. What? Libertines are degenerating society through the media. Yeah. Well, you um, can always spot the right Hegelians by the use of language. Uh, degeneracy is is a is a very interesting word because uh, etymologically speaking, degeneracy literally means uh, to diminish the quality of the gene pool. Oh, that's right, that's it. Interesting. Yeah. I never even yeah. knew that. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime you you hear a person uh, going on about the, the rise of degeneracy, uh, that that is a a specific calling on a specific theory of of uh, of of race and mm -hmm. um, right. and 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 the role of ge that genes play in the quality of the human civilization. So if you're engaged in degeneracy, what it means is that you've got a, a dysgenic 
uh, behavior taking place. Like if, if you keep this up, then uh, you're going to reduce the quality of, of the, the human family that we've gathered in this great uh, uh, that's, that's the roots of the words. I guess, I guess everybody who uses that terminology doesn't always know exactly what the root of that word. I think they just mean there's a general, um, you know, deterioration in the morals and values and, and so the forth. quality of art. And <laughs> but I think it's it, it works both ways. Some people use it. Stuff. Some people use the word degeneracy and know exactly what they mean. Other people use it naively both of you but but uh libertarians are susceptible uh to to trolling from the right because uh they just haven't been well educated and and it's uh, in in this in this this alternative history of collectivism i mean unfortunately you know you can always point to the nazi experiment you know into the rise of fascism the interwar period and and world war ii but none of us were there you know, it's it 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 seems almost like a fable uh, that we're being uh, told about, like every day since early in public school, and it and it starts to seem like this mythological past, and we get weary of hearing about it, especially from the leftists, because they're always saying, "Oh, uh, oh, but but you know, uh, the fa fascism and Hitler," and you're just like, "Well, yeah, that's that's some bad stuff, but you know, what about communism?" Yeah. And and it, and Pol Pot and 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 Mao and and Stalin. Come on, Jeffrey. You know that wasn't real socialism. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. So it frustrates us, and so we start. Yeah. They're, they're kind yeah. of the the worst the worst messengers for the anti-fascist position are the left because they yeah. actually don't have any credibility. Which, and and so that, yeah, so that's why libertarians need to be out front on this. Yeah. Especially since, you know, the left are the ones that are infiltrating the university or have infiltrated the university, the um, media and so forth. And so it's kind of got, you're, you're kind of going, well, look, I, I'm not seeing an immediate threat from the right here. They're not shutting down speakers on campuses. They yeah. are yet. Um, but you guys are. But, you know, they're, they're, they have been fairly open on the alt-right. Richard Spencer was on a Google Hangout and someone said, but we don't even believe in free speech, really, do we? He's like, no, of course not. I mean, we need it now as a tool to advocate for our ideas, but of course we don't. You know, they want to ban um, prostitution, all, all substances, um, pornography, you know, um, and so forth. And you might not approve of any of those things, but uh, as a liberal or a libertarian-minded person, you um, respect that people have the right to do this. So my next question... Could I just ask a brief one? Yeah. What I hear currently from those on the, the... What I would say is the more enlightened left uh, who are trying to make a stand against the encroachment on free speech. I hear them say things like, the left has abandoned free speech. However, it's my assertion that the left never really cared about free speech per se. They only cared about free speech for them, traditionally. Would, would you agree with that? Or? I think that has been true since the 1960s. Right. Uh, so, so, you had, so you had a lot of weird things going on on the left over the last 40 years. Once it became really obvious that socialism is terrible, uh, so you have to either abandon the ideology and embrace free markets, you know, 
or you're going to have to like distort the ideology in, in some way uh, to preserve the ideology, but save it from its biggest errors. And that's mostly what, what the left has done. I mean, this is why it's becoming ever crazier, right? Like all okay. the time. And they've run out of arguments. Yeah, they've run out of arguments, but they want to preserve their left Hegelian uh, outlook, their Marxian outlook. So then it, it just mutates and takes a different form. So suddenly, you know, this like this attack on cultural appropriation, which I don't know if that's right. going on in Scotland, but I mean, here, if you're doing yoga or eating Mexican food, you know, then you're going to have somebody saying, "Stop appropriating that culture. That's that's a form of theft, and you're you're a, you're a criminal." Uh, well, that reminds me. Crazy. Um, one of the things I've always loved about your uh, advocacy for liberty is that um, you always seem you've always seemed so cheerful, and uh, what you were known for presenting capitalism is something that enriches our life and gives us this diversity of food diversity of music it's all to play for it's a, it's an open bazaar full of all sorts of products and services more than you can um, more than you can choose between and that's something that i always felt came through in your advocacy that um the bright side of it it's not the uh, dickensian image of a child it's a counterpoint to the dickensian image of capitalism, which is a child going up a chimney in a factory or something like that. Sounds fun to me, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, so that's what's actually interesting about the state in which we find ourselves. That um, one of the reasons I think both the left and the right have become more and more extreme and crazy is a sense of panic that they're losing control of the world and. Thanks to technology and globalization and digital media, where you know you can hold this podcast, you have as much power as yeah. as the old broadcasters forty years ago, um, and they're they're panicked and they're really trying to hold on to uh, try to stop progress uh, essentially, and th that's really the essence of what's always been at the very core of the liberal revolt. They don't they don't want history to like to to move forward according to the choices of individuals. They want to plan things and constrain things and, and structure things in a way to get rid of this, this chaos. So uh, both the left and the right are reactionaries. I mean, they're, they're, yes. they're, they're trying to restore uh, a time gone by. Uh, and it just takes different forms. Sure. Is that perhaps the reason, well, it's my, it's my take, that the, why are conservatives so bad at defending capitalism, why are they so poor at making a case for capitalism? Uh, but they have, they are here at least in the UK. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's uh, in in the English tradition in the UK, in the UK history, there's uh, always been uh, three main political forces: uh, Labour, representing left socialism, one sort or another; Toryism. Uh, which has always yeah. been uh, celebrating uh, landowners and hierarchies and uh, rule by the aristocracy. And then the third group, which has been the liberals who favor small states, free trade and, and rights for everybody. And that, I mean, it's incredible. Here we are in the 21st century and those three uh, things are still alive after yeah. all this time. That, that's, that's 200 uh, years of, of the same political uh, fight. Unfortunately, we're just trying to resuscitate the liberal tradition in the UK. We are the foremost knights of liberty uh, on these isles in Scotland, at least. Um, sad, isn't it's, it? it's really, really sad. That we, it is sad. <laughs> but uh, we're doing our best. 
We've always been a minority, though. That's the interesting thing. Like yeah. even, even when we won great victories, like the repeal of the Corn Laws or the end of slavery or the advance of women's rights in the 19th century or the advent of free trade after World War II uh, or, or uh, you know, the rise of, of constitutional government or, you know, whatever, restrictions on power, essentially. Mm -hmm. we, it was almost always happened like accidentally. We were always the minority, but we prevailed like a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, but every time uh, human beings are given a, just a little bit of freedom, however accidentally, we go crazy. And, mm -hmm. and we, we build great cities and we make great technologies and just a little bit of freedom makes our lives so much better that, that, um, that we, we, I think liberalism is, is the cause, really, the philosophical foundation of, of all the things we, we love, even though we're always kind of like a small minority. Freedom refuses to die. Yeah. So what makes it right, not left? Because you mentioned the horrendous Nazi experiment. Um, and there are to this day, um, maybe more than ever, people who will go on YouTube and say, no, Hitler was a socialist. He should be put on the left side of this political spectrum. What they're not the right. I mean, if only the communists and Nazis that were fighting in the streets of, Ger of Germany in the early 20th century had known that they were both on the left. Oh, maybe they could have just all got in bed together. But um, no, what makes the right the right? Uh, what makes what, the right what, the right? What, what social, what, why, why would you place national socialism on the right? As or just fascism in general on the right? Why do you put it in the right? Uh, uh, well, a lot of it traces to the splits in Hegelianism in the early 20th century. Uh, you know, Hegel's view was that the collective is, is everything and the individual is nothing. So that takes a variety of, of forms. So uh, uh, left socialism tends to be more internationalist. And uh, they divide society uh, between uh, the or the workers and and the capitalists. Of course, these days the left divides society in a million other uh, additional mm. ways. But the right has always been about uh, the nation and, and the people as the, as the collective. And and it's never really. What's interesting about the right is it, it says, look, look, if you put us in power, uh, you can keep your religion, you can keep your your property, uh, your family. And you can experience a new form of identity, a collective identity as as a as a as a people, and you can you can have all these things provided that they serve the cause of the great collective. So right. so in that in that way, right Hegelianism does not tend to attack fundamentally people's uh, religion or, or family or property. It it is willing to acquiesce to it, and and so. If so for that reason, it's it's a little more appealing to uh, the middle middle class um, because it, it's not a fundamental cultural attack right. on people who on what on who people are. Whereas the left is always attacking uh, what it is. So the left is trying to say, look, this society is wrong. We need to rip it up and start again and replace it with a system that's going to bring us equality and. Um, fair distribution of wealth and so forth, whereas the right says more appeals to people who consider themselves to be of conscience and they think, do you know what, things are either 
things are good the way they were. We don't really need to rip it up and start again. In fact, that's a bad idea. I hate these radicals that are trying to destroy everything. What we need is a strong leader to restore our greatness and take things forward and steward us in um, some kind of positive, right. to give us something to live for, you know, that's right. bigger than ourselves. I'm tired of these people who only think about themselves, these leftists. They should be thinking about, you know, whatever, our greater destiny as a, uh, and, and, yeah. as a people. And I think yeah. that and, appeals and to people who find the life, well, I guess each appeals to people who find life meaningless, but in a different way. That's right. It's it's a way to give you a sense of, of meaning as being part of something larger than yourself. I mean, both the left and the right are doing this. What's interesting is that uh, the right has a very severe critique of commercial society. They, right. they don't, they, and the reason they don't like commercial society is because it's chaotic, and it's they consider it to be disloyal. You know, yeah. uh, like if you're if you're building an iPhone and you want to have the screens made in China, then the right is there to say, oh, that is a betrayal of our nation. You know, yeah. uh, they don't like the merchant class because the merchant class doesn't care anything about borders. Mm -hmm. And the merchant class is just giving you products and 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 cool things that 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 you that you want, and yeah. uh, uh, and they they consider the merchant class to be basically traitors. Uh, race traders, nation traders, and that that sort of thing, and and in this sense, they there's an ancient tradition, like basically Spartan and and Roman, where the merchants were always considered like just barely above the slaves, you know, uh, mm. because, because they weren't willing to serve the great collective, uh, whether yeah. the military or the building of the nation state or the celebration of the great leader. I mean, basically, <laughs> the merchant class don't care care anything yeah. about that. Because they, currently, they only care about making a buck. They don't care about blood. Or honor, or soil, or, or any of that kind of stuff. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah, but to be fair, those foreigners are taking their jobs. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's, I mean, it's, to, what, like, like Trump, Trump is is in some ways a right Hegelian. I mean, like he keeps uh, invoking these tropes that are from the right Hegelian, right wing collectivist uh, tradition. So he. he you know, like his attacks on the American companies who are outsourcing their products, you know, like he, every day he's denouncing like Amazon and, and Apple and saying, uh, you know, the, the traders and, and the, uh, among the, the, the media, you know, it's, it's like it's just like a barrage of stuff. And it's kind of interesting because in the U.S. in any way, in any case, the Republican Party has usually been in favor of, of commerce, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the commercial classes, but Trump has changed this, you know, completely. And and I think it's interesting. I think if you're going to look forward uh, over the next year or two, you're going to see it get ever more intense. Mm -hmm. You know, this yeah. kind of right wing attack on commercial society. Because I guess I'm, I'm thinking Trump's major problem with some of these corporations like Amazon is that they're transnational and global. As he perceives it, and therefore they have no loyalty again to the to the, to the nation state. Yeah. That's right. That's well, exactly. I mean, it would be nice if he stopped giving them handouts out of the public purse. You know, <laughs> that's that, that, that's a good start. I'm sure you can stop some corporate welfare, please, Trump. And um, that might be nice. Especially if it is large uh, military uh, corporations, you know, that build. But you know, yeah. it's, it's even getting worse than that because, like, 
because many, many farmers lost their export markets as a result of his trade wars. And so they stopped being able to sell soybeans uh, abroad and things like this. So now Trump has, has delivered 12 to $14 billion in subsidies to the people who have been hurt by his own policy. That's going on like right now. But, uh, it's so infuriating. Um, I'm almost reminded of that story about the, and this is straight out of Atlas Shrugged. Um, there was a period where the watches made in America um, took 58 minutes to count an hour, and the Swiss watches were accurate. So rather than um, allow Americans to import superior watches from Switzerland, the government decided to put a tariff on the accurate Swiss watches which um, obviously led to a trade, uh, a trade war. And it's like, uh, people don't understand the concept of um, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, unfortunately, and they don't see that. Yeah, it's a shame for some soybean farmers if they go out of business, but it's time to find them, themselves a new business because you can't hold the rest of the country to ransom who want to buy cheaper food. And it's amazing that the left don't see how trade restrictions harm the poorest people in Western countries who can't import cheap goods from abroad because of trade restrictions and, uh, and how bad it is, of course, for the third world when we, when we don't send them our money, which they need to build schools and infrastructure and hospitals uh, because we don't want to put our own farmers or producer, producers out of business out of some nationalistic sentiment. Um, you know, it's the poorest people in the world who really stand to benefit from free trade, and yet both the left and the right seem to think nothing. There could be nothing worse than free trade. It's it's bizarre. This is exactly what's happening in the U.S. The left is not objecting to Trump's trade wars like, at all. Yes, I mean, sure. the, uh, Elizabeth Warren is his biggest enemy, right? Uh, Trump's well, biggest enemy, but, but but she is all for uh, the trade restrictions on China. I mean, she she thinks he's entirely Crazy. correct. Yeah, I would just so on this point about free trade. Uh, one of our live viewers has asked us, Gorilla TV channel, ask him about Adam Smith. Nothing more um, specific than that, but perhaps you could say it a little bit about it for what, what did smith get right and what did smith get wrong in your view oh i so i i love adam smith we have to remember that uh there's been, been a lot of that's, yeah yeah well that's before. right i mean uh there have been a lot of advances in economics since uh, since the time of smith of course but 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 generally you know his chapter on the division of labor is absolutely brilliant uh, uh his his celebration of regular people building good lives through cooperation and trade. Uh, I just don't think anybody is, like even now, it's it's beautiful. I also really like The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his, his first book. Uh, it's really interesting to read and and really a glorious book. So I'm, I, I, there's plenty of problems with Smith. Like I think he acquiesced too easily to the idea of a large public sector, you know, uh, and, and his labor theory of value, he, he got that he got that wrong. You know, although in some of his notes and his lectures, he got it right. So he wasn't a perfect thinker, and it's really easy to attack him, I guess. But uh, yeah. but I, I think if we wanted to have a founding father of of capitalism, a word he never used, 
Um, I think we could do a lot worse than Adam Smith. I really yeah. think benefit from from reading him uh, even today. I I love the theory of moral sentiments uh, so much, and and wealth of nations. I mean, you know, he starts off the book by asking a really profound question: How does a society grow wealthier? I mean, it's a really interesting and mysterious thing. Uh, Aristotle didn't think it was possible. You know, if you read his section on 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 economics and wealth. He thinks that the the way you get wealthy is by taking it from somebody else, right? right. I mean, he doesn't believe there's such a, a capacity to make society yeah. overall wealthier. I mean, well, he's kind of zero sum game, if you will. Yeah, entirely. So by by the 18th century, it became obvious we had gone through about 150 or 200 years in which people you saw people gradually getting wealthier, and it was at the end of the Black Death and the the rise of. Uh, more and more commercial society once the end of feudalism came and average people started getting money and trading started taking place and you started seeing you know the opening of the factory systems and 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 poor people getting uh, suddenly richer and, and people creating businesses and 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 Smith really set out to discover like well it's clear that everybody is getting wealthier how does this happen so he was like a scientist to, to try to uh, trying to figure this mystery out. Right. And and his answer is 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 correct, but a little bit boring. Uh, he says it's that 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 the rise of wealth is made possible through the expansion of the market um, and the division of labor. Like to the extent that you can more peacefully cooperate with other people, uh, that makes that allows you to specialize more, and for them to specialize more, and for us all together. Uh, through trade and exchange to to create this thing we call wealth, and it's a great answer. And I think he might have been uh, the most prominent intellectual, the first most prominent intellectual in the world to really uh, identify this as the source of wealth creation. And, and of course, and, he came from here in Scotland, so yeah, can't be that bad. Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. Would, um, I would add that it's quite amazing how Trump has managed to debunk uh, his arguments and also David Ricardo's and all the classic. I mean, for someone who's just, uh, you know, come up in business in New York to 250 years later smash the arguments of the neoclassical economists, I mean, he sure, sure showed Adam Smith, didn't he? <laughs> It's very frustrating because he has just a handful of arguments, you know, Trump, and he keeps saying them over and over again. Uh, one is that it's never in the, the best propaganda techniques. Yeah, it is. It is. He says it's never in a country's interest for uh, business domiciled in the nation to ever uh, have production taking place outside the borders. He says it's it's never in a country's interest to to ever let that happen. That's always bad. So he doesn't understand that actually. Uh, you know, the, the the money comes back, uh, the products mm -hmm. come back, and they're cheaper and they're the more available to everybody. And the more you can uh, draw, it's like Adam Smith said: like if yeah. you can have a bigger range of the division of labor, then everybody gets wealthier together. He doesn't get that. The other thing he doesn't understand, maybe, um, is that the trade deficit figures don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, they're just uh, accounting fictions. And he always acts like if we're uh, if we're importing more from a country than we're exporting to that country, then that somehow it means that they owe us something, right? And that they're robbing us. So until the trade figures are 
uh, either equal or a surplus between the U.S. and every other country, or every country and every other country. He thinks there's something unfair taking place. And it's really quite crazy when you think about it, because do, does my standard of living increase when I buy something or when I sell something? It's when I get stuff that I become richer. So I want to import things. If I'm a nation, I want to make as many exchanges as possible so I get stuff that makes me happy. So it's a very crazy point of view. Trump, read your David Ricardo. <laughs> okay. Well, and, um, then, and then becoming ever more extreme, you know, and basically he imagines himself to be the CEO of every, of every company right. uh, in America. And he thinks that he personally can run all these companies better than the companies themselves. I mean, he's lecturing uh, uh, Apple on where their production should take place. And it's, it's like, you don't have any skin in this game. You know, this is not your company. You don't know anything about this subject. But he's like a, he's like, he's kind of like Mussolini in a way. Like he really thinks that he can plan the economy out of his own brain. It's really something. Uh, well, one of the questions I've got to ask is, is that a ready-made bow tie or, is that a, is it a, or do you tie the bow tie yourself? And does Murray Rothbard, does his estate get uh, any commission for every time a libertarian wears a bow tie? It is it is a, a bow tie to tie, and I, I uh, excellent. I well, only cads and grinders wear ready-made bow ties. I am both a cad and a grinder, but I see no re reason to advertise the fact by wearing a, a, a ready-made bow tie. It's well done. Thank you. I'm, I'm traveling right now. I'm in Great Barrington at the American Institute for Economic Research. And so I, I always take a big uh, pile of bow ties with me. And so, uh, But I have about a, maybe 100, 150 of them at home or something like this. I have two of Murray's bow ties that his wife gave to, gave to me after oh, Murray died. Um, and, and, and it's funny because I've been wearing a bow tie many, many years before I ever met Murray. I started wearing a bow tie when I was about 15 years old. Um, Although my mother shows me pictures of me when I was like two years old, three years old, and I, I was always wearing a bow tie, so maybe I always loved them. I don't know. I asked her the other day. I said, "Did I, did I demand this, or you just put them on me?" She goes, "I think, I think you liked bow ties." <laughs> I, well, you, you said, I think every man should—it's one of those things every man should be able to do in his life is tie a bow tie. So I think you should possibly do a, a, a video uh, on YouTube showing all libertarians how the proper method of tying a bow tie. Yeah. I, I, I wondered about that. It's funny that you mentioned this because even this morning, because uh, this is also a detachable collar, uh, which are yeah. extremely difficult uh, to put on. So there's a huge apparatus associated with it. So you attach the collar, you flip it up, you put the thing out, you have to reshape the collar and, and lock it. It doesn't go pin with comedic effect at any point. Does it, does it um, roll, roll around in a circle? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it takes time to, to learn to put on this thing. And I was actually thinking this morning it would be Sunday fun to do a video just ex explaining precisely how to do it uh, because it's yeah, years, it's years of experience I can, I can do it without a mirror and just very very quickly but but it does take some dexterity yeah indeed your signature look so recently you had an article out um about economic autarky for those yeah, yeah. of us who are woefully naive what does that mean and why should we know about it yeah autarky a-u-t a R K Y, and uh, mm -hmm. it was the theory that that emerged out of uh, out of initially from from Germany out of Friedrich, Friedrich List, and it was a repudiation of Adam Smith's theory of free trade. The idea is that 
all production should take place within a geographically constrained unit. Um, and that that's what national policy should should strive towards is is like complete uh, barriers, you know. And what what's fascinating about that whole theory is that it didn't really go anywhere in the nineteenth century, but and but it really started to take take hold in the twentieth century. And uh, in the U.S. anyway, we had uh, well we were repealing tariffs, repealing tariffs, repealing tariffs, and getting ever more free trade. And then the Great Depression hit. And immediately it was like, okay, here's uh, here's our new uh, tariff walls in 1930. And uh, my article yesterday on autarky actually examined a really interesting article by John Maynard Keynes, who wrote it in 1933. Now Keynes had previously been a champion of free trade and somewhat liberal in his outlook in the 19, uh, in the economic consequences of the peace, which came out, I think in 1919, more of a, a liberal. But in 1933, he announces that now, uh, basically, he's an an autarchist, right? So he says that everything, everything should be homespun, homespun. I, like I, I can't believe he used that word. I mean, like I'm supposed to sit at home with a spinning wheel. I mean, this is instead of buying a T-shirt from China, I'm supposed to like sit at home with a. It's it's a crazy word. But then he even says something more absurd. He says all finance should be national. Okay, so what what that would mean is, I don't know what, the, uh, it means that like uh, you couldn't buy a US treasury bill, you know, um, or that I wouldn't be able to trade in the Japanese stock market, or that I wouldn't be able to have uh, any money at a Swiss bank account, yeah. or that world stock market shouldn't be integrated in, in any sense, the bond market should only be nation by nation. controls basically. Yeah, I mean, that would be like, I mean, it's just incredible to say all finance has to be national. So what I did in this article was like deconstruct his article and say, well, why did he favor this? And the reason he favored it is that Keynes had become a champion of, of, of central planning, right? So he says in 1933, he's like, a lot of countries are getting it right, like Russia, uh, Germany, Italy and Ireland. Now, I don't know what was going on in Ireland in 1933. I don't know what was going on in Ireland in 1933. But in Russia, uh, uh, the Ukrainian famine was going on, and six to seven million people uh, died of starvation or actively killed uh, by Stalin. Stalin had been in control since 1929. So here you have John Maynard Keynes going, ah, there's really good things going on in Russia. Uh, in Germany, uh, the Nazis had uh, almost taken full control of the country, and two years later had imposed the Nuremberg Laws that specifically deprecated uh, Jews as citizens uh, they, and, and, and had laws against uh, uh, employing them. Uh, uh, Mises escaped from Austria in 1934 because he saw what was, what was happening. And in Italy, Mussolini was firmly in charge of the government and was imp implementing the corporate state. So here you have John Maynard Keynes saying, there's a lot of very good stuff going on in the world in places like Italy, Germany, and Russia. Uh, and there may make some mistakes, but most of this is very good. And, and every country should adopt this. But in order to adopt it, they have to have autarky. They have to become little... Um, experiments. Every nation should be an experiment in central planning that's completely self-contained, 
ruled by dictators and advised by very smart people like John Maynard Keynes. I mean, so right, right. that was the basis of his his theory of, of autarky. So, um, and so then what's it, what does it have in common with technocracy? Is it, is it, is it similar then? Well, autarky makes possible uh, technocracy. So first, you have to constrain the trade. Like you have to make society a laboratory with as a controlled experiment, and that means you have to stop this crazy activity of everybody trading outside the country. So autarky is like, as far as Keynes was concerned was an essential condition for central planning. Like you had to first eliminate international trade. Then you could start conducting all kinds of experiments. Uh, so, so autarky becomes like an important uh, precondition for every kind of dictatorial central planning uh, regime. Well, I think it's a really interesting thing. I mean, autarky is, it's like, goes like this, Adam Smith, autarky. Okay, these are, these are the opposite points of view. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they've always been opposed to each other. Now, so I think Trump is basically an autarchist. <clears throat> but um, but I, th I think people have been very slow to realize this. Like, they didn't believe him, you know, because we're so unfamiliar with this. It's so weird. Like, since World War II, the autarchist position has been completely rejected. Like, first, we had the general agreement on tariffs and trade, and you can look uh, at a chart of tariff barriers since World War II and just see they're going down, 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 down. Oh. And then we had the World Trade Organization. It was down, down. And everybody agreed, okay, uh, uh, free trade is, is an essential condition for prosperity and peace, all right? Like, like, this was a consensus believed all over the world. Now here we are in the 21st century and people are like, man, I'm not so sure about that. So <laughs> it's changing and it's weird. Like yeah, the one thing that we got right. Creepy now. Whereas before it seemed like a good idea. I mean, uh, it was compelling the idea like you said, I mean, you're just gonna let the economy do its own thing. No central planning, no plan. Look at the stupid decisions you can see people make. I mean, that guy's fat over there and he's eating a burger, right? Well, these people can't be trusted. We need to have sensible people to look at the science, to look at the data, and make a plan. Obviously, like you can't just otherwise it's stupid. That I think that is a prevalent view. Uh, and still, I think it was more prevalent. It was prevalent in the period that you were discussing, but now it's seen as a little bit more creepy. Maybe, maybe. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little cautious to be. Uh, to be the guy who says, oh, these people don't matter. But mainly because yeah. uh, in the late 19th century, uh, people of our views were convinced that the future was ours. I mean, we right. thought that like between about 1850 and about 1890, the world had transformed. You know, I mean, lives were get, getting longer and longer. Uh, population was dramatically rising. Uh, cities were growing tall up in the air thanks to the commercialization of steel. We got we got flight, internal combustion, new communication technologies with telephones. Uh, everything was uh, photography was advancing. I mean, we, it was amazing. And you looked at it, and people like with our views uh, said, "Oh, look! Uh, finally, the world's getting its act together. You know, we're we're leaving feudalism. We understand that that commerce is." is glorious, it's making everybody rich, we need to protect private property and keep government small. And they thought that everything would be fine. And then like almost in a blink of an eye, you know, like right after the turn of the 20th, uh, as we're moving into the 20th century, 
it all started happening at once. You know, central banking, uh, income taxes, and then uh, labor controls and regulations and uh, segregations and, and passports. Well, that came along with the terrible, terrible, terrible thing, World War One. I. I mean, World War One was the really the turning point because that massively empowered governments all uh, in every country that was at war and uh, production was nationalized. We got uh, passports and migration restrictions and central banks uh, funded, uh, made possible World War One. And then, and then after that, it was like it we've had a hell of a time just getting rid of, of, of these, these states that were built in this period. So as you move, march forward in the 20th, 20th century, like after the collapse of communism uh, and the rise of, of digital technology, we started seeing states diminish more and more in power and, uh, and more and more private companies getting richer and, and, and standard living rising and it's looking really good. And I think libertarians might look at that and say, oh, we're, gonna, we're going to win. And, and I think we are. But I'm I'm just a little cautious about it because I know what happened a century ago when we got overconfident. You know, right, yeah. we had terrible things uh, hit the world, and and I yeah. I think this this is why we have to be out there fighting. You know, every day yeah. for 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 liberalism, classically understood, uh, because our voices need to be there uh, to counter. You know, the, the prominent voices on the left and the right, and the media, the left and right media, and the the, the left wing. Uh, clarity in, in the universities, and then yes. government that always wants to hang on to its power. And that leaves just us to say, sure. well, here's an even better idea. Why don't we just be, everybody be left alone uh, sure. to live their lives, you know? So what, what's more important in your view, or, 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 or the equal, do they need to go hand in hand? Is economic liberty more important? Is that a prerequisite? Is that more important than actual civil liberties to start with? Or, or, oh. or do they go hand in hand? They're, they're absolutely inseparable. And yeah. uh, it's frustrating because you talk to the left and they can agree with you on civil liberties, maybe. Less or more, less or now than you yeah. yeah, but used to they would agree with us on civil liberties, but then they would say, oh, but not economic liberty. But, but actually, if you go back to the work of Benjamin Constant, 1820, he was a great, uh, I think, Frenchman Constant, I think he was French. Um, but he wrote this great essay called The Difference Between the Liberty of the Ancients and the Liberty of the Moderns. And he said that after the end of, at the end of the Middle Ages, this new conception of liberty came to the world uh, where everyone had equal freedom and the right to get rich and, and uh, live a good life. But, but, but essential to that new conception, that modern conception of liberty, was commercial freedom. Like you, you can't even speak about freedom unless you're willing to grant the the centrality and the need of commercial uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I mean, I think it's our job to to be uh, celebrators of of commerce. Uh, so I, um, and and the left disagrees with that, and increasingly the right does too. So it just kind of leaves us. So I think it's mm -hmm. absolutely essential that we we talk about it. Uh, about yeah. economics in, in every Absolutely. possible way. And, and I love economics as a discipline, as a, as a science, mm -hmm. as, a, as a subject, you know. But, uh, but we need to figure out ways to communicate this with, with people in every, every possible way. Like if you don't have the freedom to own and to trade and to create um, uh, and, to, and to take a job on your own terms and 
and things like this, you're really not free. Right, right. I, I could not agree more. And on the point of being out up front to refute the other voices, there are many. We are few, but we do have the truth on our side. And sometimes, well, I hope that will go a long way. So I mean to change tack a little bit. We had a couple of questions from fans. And uh, we did say we talked a little bit about um, libertarian infighting or splits within the libertarian movement. So someone wanted um, basically you, you to explain why you're no longer affiliated with the Mises Institute. Well, I was at the Mises Institute for 25 years um, and really uh, was, was there to, to build the whole thing. And I, I was the webmaster and post a thousand books. Uh, I'm very proud of my work there. I knew for sure by 2011 or so that I did not want this job for life and I wanted uh, different kinds of challenges. And so I, I took immediately a, a job with a for-profit company called Agora Financial and an opportunity to rebuild laissez-faire books. And I was just looking for new challenges. Uh, that was essentially it. I, I think it was a really good decision. Um, I'm very proud of the work I did at the Mises Institute and uh, very happy about all, all the work I did there and the people I met and uh, all my friends and colleagues. But um, I think it's, I, I didn't believe anybody who told me that it was somehow my job, uh, my obligation to stay in one institution my entire life. I mean. Yeah, right, of course. No. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, a relationship between you and Mrs. Cardio, or Cardio. One more time, I'm sorry. Actually, are, are, are relations between yourself and the Mises Institute are they, are they perfectly cordial? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends uh, who are continue to, to speak there and um, and that sort of thing. So I have no interest in uh, in feeding you know uh, the, the the there's a lot of people on the outside who look in and go, oh look, you know, this person likes this person, that person doesn't like that person, and so on and so on. And I, I just think that's just a huge waste of time. Like for me personally, our, 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 we aren't an, enough of us, you know, to to justify that sort of thing. And I get really tired of libertarian infighting because I think what what happens is that people start to get bored. Like they feel like they're not having making any difference in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so then they they decide the only people who really care about what they're saying are other libertarians. And so they, mm. you know, social media has fed this, you know, so this every day there's fights online and people are there's Twitter wars and the gossiping and groups and and you probably have noticed this, but I never participate in, in any of this stuff at all. I would I'd rather write in a, in a in a bigger way towards bigger subjects and not get not to get dragged down and and that kind well, of well, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook, so I'm clueless, happily clueless of what's going on there, unless he tells me. Right. So, yeah. Well, there's a perception that, you know, an article that you wrote, which, by the way, we discussed, uh, I'm not sure if we discussed it on our show, but we definitely discussed it over a beer, um, which oh, was the, the brutalist, the brutalist ah. um, versus humanist. Now, personally, when I didn't know the context, um, of this article or that it created a controversy. I personally found it a useful metric um, because I could identify the, um, the two different strands, uh, the more, um, oh, liberty, capitalism is so good because it enriches humanity versus me and my stuff, you know, get your hat, get off my land. Now, right. actually both 
are valid arguments for liberty. I mean, you don't have the right to my stuff. But I believe, since becoming a libertarian, especially as someone that came over from the left, that if we're going to win the war of minds, we have to make the humanitarian case for capitalism, because not everyone's going to share our values. And um, we need to show the humanitarian case for capitalism to bait people's appetite. And if they can see that this isn't a system that exploits people, that it does raise people's standards of living, they'll come to see the sense of the principle, the non-aggression principle. But it was the utilitarian, I needed to be satisfied that the poor weren't going to be dying on the streets before becoming, before embracing the non-aggression principle and becoming an anarchist. Um, so I, I personally found that a useful metric. Do you want to speak a little bit about the controversy that that um, article created and why you think that is? Sure. I, I, I wrote that. First of all, I love that article. I think it was, it took me a long time to think through. I had noticed that certain uh, people who might otherwise be friends of libertarianism were uh, suspicious of us because they mm -hmm. thought that we wanted our own kind of plan or our own set of power and that it was, it was just purely about, um, you know, my right to do shitty things, you know. And uh, so I began to wonder, are libertarians actually playing into that? You know, are we saying things and do we, have we developed attitudes that are losing their broader sense of the aesthetic of, of human liberty uh, to only focus on, on a really mm -hmm. stripped down, narrow perspective? So I wrote the article um, and, and this brutalism uh, word was grew out of an architectural analogy like yeah. and I don't, I don't want to go into it because you can read the article but yeah. um there's a form of architecture that emerged after world war ii like people said okay well if you're going to bomb our buildings then we're just going to make them purely functional you know and mm -hmm. without any adornments not make them very beautiful so my concern was that we would construct a libertarianism that looked very much like brutalist architecture just extreme right. minimalist with no broader vision which i mean I knew Murray well. Murray had a big vision of the of the world. Right. Mises had a big vision. Hayek had a big vision. Bastiat. I mean, Benjamin Constant. Every, every great libertarian thinker has had a a, a big vision of the yeah. world. And even and, Rand, uh, arguably more on the brutalist camp, had a big, exciting vision of yeah, capitalism. Exactly. So my article was really an attempt to kind of tease out these these two kind of perspectives, you know, one purely stripped down and reductionist, and the other big and evocative. And and I was uh, I was excited about the article just as a purely intellectual exercise. I I, I was excited about it because I thought I made a very interesting yeah a very interesting argument. So but when I posted it, it I I was shocked because it just blew up. And and it was a raging controversy for like six months or even a year, uh, and uh, I didn't entirely understand where it came from, and I didn't respond to any of the critics because I felt like um, people were reading things into it that really weren't there. Like like yeah. like one of the things people really wanted to know was who was I attacking, and. I, I could just honestly say I wasn't attacking anyone in particular. I was attacking uh, like a body of of conceptual ideas that may or might, yeah, like like a way of thinking, you know, that maybe nobody actually holds that view. But if you take the 
if you overly reduce libertarianism to just the most stripped down possible position, it could result in this, you know, if you forget the bigger vision. So it, for me, it was, an, it was an intellectual exercise. So, but I think everybody thought I was throwing myself into this debate. And I already told you, I don't really like get involved with the factional disputes. But what people were telling me is like, you don't understand this debate between like left and right libertarianism or, or something like that has been raging, you know, for two years. And I was like, yeah, I think I know about that a little bit, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't all that tuned into Like I just, so, so I inadvertently entered into this huge fight and, and didn't entirely know that that's what I was doing. And so I made this gigantic contribution and it was, uh, uh, and suddenly everybody was pulling at me, but like I said, I didn't really respond to it uh, because I wrote my article and that's really kind mm -hmm. of all I wanted to say about it really. And I didn't mean to divide people more. I was right. just trying to provoke uh, a thought. And what was interesting about it, and it actually made me laugh, is that like that article created, temporarily anyway, a brutalist movement. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Because I, I gave the cool name to the bad guys and the lame name to the good guys. And so the bad guys are like, oh, yeah, I'm a brutalist. So suddenly there's all these brutalist right. groups on Facebook. Oh, and then I like it. It seems to be synonymous with misanthrope. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the humanist on this show in terms of the brutalist for his um that's great. Well, I think between us, there's some sort of balance there. Well, there's, there's a little bit of brutalism in all of us. It's okay. Yeah, I become increasingly misanthropic, and I don't know if it's spending too much time around this guy, or I'm just more in tune to how bad, how far gone the world actually is, and how annoying people are. <laughs> but you know that article has been translated into many, many languages, and it keeps being read. And I reread it every once in a while. There's certain things about it I might change, but. Mostly, I think it's a really interesting uh, article. By the way, I write to explain things to myself. Yeah, so this is, this, Yeah, this is how I, I think out loud, right? And I, a lot of times I'm explaining things to myself and discovering things to myself. It's like, for me, it's an adventure. So that article was uh, a little bit of a corrective to me personally. It's like, um, here's w where I might go with my thinking if I, if I get carried away in just one path. And so here's my way of working myself out of that to understanding the bigger picture. And, and I, it really was, a, I would, so I wasn't lecturing people. It was more yeah. like, it was more You're like, to help me understand myself. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to push the issue or anything like that. So feel free to dismiss the question, but there's a perception that you lost some friends over the, that article. Is that, um, do you, Hold that as accurate. Oh, sure. oh uh, certainly. I mean, I've lost friends over over any big articles I've uh, written. I mean, I I I, I, I lost a, Well, I mean, I don't. To me, I I wish that people could be friends, uh, even if they disagree. But like when mm -hmm. I first started writing about cryptocurrency, for example, I mean, I had a lot of people just like say, "Oh, this guy's crazy." Um, that article led uh, to uh, uh, some loss of friendship. I mean, I think um, my old friend uh, Hans Hoppe, you know, I have mm -hmm. disagreements with him, but I also published a lot of his work, um, uh, has variously called me, you know, a foe, 
I know, it's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. friend turned full Jeffrey Tucker. That doesn't, doesn't mean simply an intellectual quote or the same way you would describe someone in a boxing match or, you know, as your I don't know. I don't know. Who would win in a boxing match, you or Hans Hermann Hoffa? Let's get it on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the other thing is that Hans has really—I don't know—it's hard. Hans is a hard one to to figure out, but but he also, in that same speech, really made fun of liberalism. Uh, he called it like wimpy and you know irrelevant. I don't know how you can be a libertarian and not have a profound respect and appreciation for liberal tradition. So. So I'm not sure where where he's headed with his thinking there. Um, I I. I I worry about a libertarianism that's detached from the liberal tradition because I'm afraid it gets unmoored and very confused. And ideology can be very dangerous, you know? Like you look at a guy like Werner Sombart, you know, whom Hayek writes about in Road to Serfdom. Here's a guy who was obviously very brilliant, but he was a dedicated communist, right, for, for, for decades and wrote all these books on communism, blah, blah, blah. Very smart guy. And then lost his faith in communism and went through a brief period of like uh, uh, social democracy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the Nazis came along and then he, he, he w went full Nazi. And then he started writing all these books in favor of national, national socialism and the Nazi party. And I, you know, I look at a, a life like that and it, it seems like such a waste, you know? Um, and I think we have to be really careful with, with the way we play with ideas and, and we need to root ourselves in something. Like we, we need to be careful, otherwise our minds will just run crazy. And this is why I like, I like emphasizing liberal tradition. Like we have a long, lineage. yeah, lineage tracing back to the late middle ages really. And our views were built up carefully uh, a little bit at a time with religious liberty and, and free speech and freedom of press and uh, limits on power. And we began to develop technologies a little bit at a time to keep government at bay. And then we started getting new theoretical developments in economics and, you know, so on and so on. And, and like, and then, uh, and then always part of the liberal tradition, by the way, has always been the, the anarchist position, which is that, Look, there's nothing the state knows how to do well. Uh, society's better at everything mm -hmm. yeah. uh, than the state. The state can't add anything to what we're trying to do here on this planet. And uh, that's always been part of the liberal tradition. So I don't, I don't think that because, you know, if you've, if you've embraced an, an anarchism, that that separates you from, from mm -hmm. liberalism. I mean, Gustave de Molinari was, was uh, believed in the private production of security in the 19th century. Uh, a guy like Juan de Mariana, the, mm -hmm. the late Middle Ages Spanish uh, scholastic, uh, believed that uh, the states are dispensable institutions mm -hmm. and, and that we could just get rid of them. So uh, anarchism is, is also part of the liberal tradition. I, I think there's something wrong if we, if we, if we de detach ourselves from that. I think it's actually potentially really dangerous. Right. I, uh, I have benefited from some of Hans Hermann Hoppe's thinking. But my main problem with Hoppeanism, well, I've got two. One is, first of all, I would be thrown out of Hans Hermann Hoppe's, sorry, physically removed from his gated community for being too much of a cad. And secondly, I wouldn't want to be a member of a gated community that would have me as a member. <laughs>
That's really funny. I mean, there's a way in which you can defend Hans's position on physical removal just simply to say, like, if you had a polycentric legal order, uh, then every small community can have its own own rules, and that's certainly true. Um, but but to pretend as an intellectual that you know what those rules would be and mm -hmm. which ones would succeed and which ones would fail, I think that is that is something you can't you can't know. You have to have a you have to have a market working. That's the uh, one so, the market uh, ideas get tried and the good ones went out over time and get ruled out. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and, and this is where I think Hayek can make a, a good correct, correction because I mean, like Hayek believed that the rules that order our lives should also be subject to a kind of a market test. Uh, and this is a position that I think has been elaborated on in really great ways by people like David Friedman and, and so on. And I think this is, I think this is a more correct way to understand understand things rather than thinking that as libertarians we know for sure what all the rules in society should be. I mean, it's just too much. I mean, that that's not a libertarian principle. I think so. Well, we have been going for a little over an hour, but if you would be willing to, I've got one or two more questions for you before we wrap up and you can spend okay. as much or as little time as, as and as you'd like. Um, and they are from our listeners, which is why I'd, I'd like the opportunity to ask you them. The first is, um, someone wanted to know a little bit about your conversion from Southern Baptism to Catholicism. If it isn't too personal a question. It's always difficult to deconstruct something like that. And every time I answer mm -hmm. it, it, uh, it, the answer is a little bit different. Sometimes we don't always know what goes into it. But... Um, but I mean, I think for me, like, I, uh, once I got, I, w I wanted how, to. How, how are you? Is that a philosophical position or are you, are you practice? Well, I, I think uh, when I made that choice, it was because I wanted to get serious about thinking about the relationship between uh, religion. Uh, society and my own personal commitments, and and I found uh, Catholicism to be much more rich and interesting world to explore, you know, than than this really tr truncated. Uh, I think uh, what struck me at the time was you know was very simple uh, Southern Baptist uh, religion. Um, I also liked that Catholicism was really connected to history, so I could. I could I could examine the history of the Catholic Church and and also see the rise of things like uh, the university, uh, beautiful music and architecture, and the relationship between uh, religious liturgy and the development of social norms and so. So and 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 if you know something about the way this works, it's like when you get really super interested in something like this and you can't stop thinking about it, eventually you just go. You know, I'm going to stop fighting. I'm just going to join it. You know, so it took me like like three or four years, uh, but yeah, I eventually did that. The thing is, I mean, I I jumped the other way. I was brought, I was born and raised pretty much strict Roman Catholic. I embraced, for want of a better word, what you might call an evangelical Protestant tradition, and I it it baffles me. I can't even begin to understand why somebody would go the other way. I mean, just just a couple of things, and you're free to refute them. I mean, Roman Catholic Church opposed Belgian Constitution, opposed French Constitution, it, it opposed, I believe, even the American Constitution. 
and sought very keenly and violently to try and keep control of absolute monarchies, which of course it could influence. It would seem to be the absolute enemy of free thinking liberalism, but I mean, perhaps you have some other take on that. I can't disagree with what you just said. I think there's many particular ways in which the Catholic Church has been uh, a force for centralization, an opponent of liberalism. Even as late as the 1880s and 1890s, the, the Catholic Church was fighting for against religious liberty and fighting mm -hmm. for uh, acquiescence to, 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 to power. Uh, the, and these issues are extremely complicated, and, and there's yeah. nobody who can win this debate. But one thing about Catholicism... Yeah. Well, one thing you can say about that is that the Catholic Church, though, as a multinational power, has been a little bit of the, a check against, against nationalism. So uh, this is one of the problems that came with the Protestant Reformation, right? So suddenly you had a German state church, you had a Swiss state church, and, and uh, the Puritans were uh, quite totalitarian and tribal. Catholicism yeah. is, is not very tribal because it's, it's so universal and inclusive of so many from Africa to Asia to Central America. So there's a universalism uh, that that tends to be a check against against nationalism. So I don't disagree with anything you said, um, actually, at all. But there's there's also another uh, there's another uh, weight there too. Okay. Uh, the Catholicism has been, and actually, it's it's interesting because even in the 16th century, or actually, you can go back further to the to the late 15th century and see that the Catholic Church was in many ways a protector and defender of the multinational merchant class uh, throughout, throughout Europe uh, and, 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 and was against the rise of, of, of nationalisms and, and tribalisms and fanaticisms at the local level that would have thrown the Medicis out of Florence, you know, or uh, given rise to some demagogic power in Munster, Germany, or some, some nonsense like this. Like, the Pope has always been kind of against that kind of fanaticism and, and sometimes used violence to prevent it, right? So there's two things. So, but so the Catholic Church, I think, was in many ways a very good influence in that respect, and in other ways a very bad influence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so the Catholic Church blessed uh, the worst form of uh, colonialism and imperialism and violations of uh, human rights and uh, yeah, 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 and, and national constitutions where the Catholic Church has always been against against that, and that's terrible. So history is complicated. And, and I'll tell you something else. I think it's probably mostly a mistake to choose your religion based on uh, um, your perceptions of like uh, politics. It's not irrelevant, but- oh, yeah, that, That's uh, not why it happened to me, but it, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. Well, as a godless heathen, I don't know a Southern Baptist from a Northern Catholic. So uh, you guys can... Uh, we'll uh, Jeffrey, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. We had a couple more questions, but that's all the more reason to have you back six okay. months, nine months, so you're down the line. Uh, it would be our pleasure. I can just say, if you have any interest in the subject, we were planning to have um, a show, 
hopefully next week on the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, why it was largely ignored by the West then, and why it was, especially by dissidents in the West who had a lot to say about Vietnam, and why the recent 50 year anniversary of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia last month received very little I'll tune in. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed visiting with both of you. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you. It's been excellent. Thank you very much, nice, guys. Okay.